NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Hi, this is Pod Save the UK. I'm Coco Khan. And I'm Nish Kumar. And this week, the Russell Brand scandal. I was pushing him away, pushing him away, and he wasn't he wasn't backing off at all. And so I ended up having to punch him really hard in the stomach to get him off. We'll examine the uncomfortable questions it raises for us all. Plus, we'll be saving the UK from bad cops. Leroy Logan, a former police superintendent, will be here to tell us how to sort out the Met. We're together again. It's nice <laughs> to have back. you back. Yeah. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm back. And we're, we're recording this the other way around. We've yes. changed seating positions. Yes, you snooze, you lose, bro. <laughs> That's basically what this is. I didn't, I didn't know I was sat in the desirable seat. <laughs> well, I don't know either. Just for our listeners in audio, we normally have our set seats in yeah. the studio. And while Nish has been away, I've decided to take his. <laughs> I like to think it will make me more attractive. <laughs> that is why I'm doing it. That's, that's, that's true. why you got into the political podcasting game, wasn't it, Coco? For more compliments about your appearance. <laughs> exactly. No, but it, it's true that everybody has a good side, right? So I'm just trying to... It may be that this is my good side sitting here. So and you're trying you to, you're want trying me to f- show my best side to everyone, Nish? Whereas I know, <laughs> w- whatever angle, um, it's a six out of ten at best for me. I'm happy with a six out of ten, whatever the angle is. <laughs> You're dealing with a certain quality of ingredient. <laughs> and you just make the best of it. I mean, I'm sure I'll hear from the from people on YouTube about whether this is my good side or bad side. <laughs> as far as far as I can tell, there's it's it's all fine. <laughs> well please do let us know in the most polite way possible. <laughs> that would be great. Well, I don't know that there's a polite way to say either way is bad. <laughs> I don't think there's a polite way to say that at all. Do you have any friends who uh, are like the masterful letdowners? So I've got a friend who works in hospitality and I think part of working in hospitality is you learn how to do a sort of a, a big smile but tells the person no, right? right? So yeah, they yeah, ask yeah. for something, yes. big smile, like, oh, I don't think that'll be possible. Yeah. You know, there's just a way that they do it. And that's what I'm expecting in the comments. It'll be like, you know, I've always liked how Coco looks most weeks. Big smile. <laughs> <laughs> my, my friends are all stand-up comedians, mm-hmm. so they'll they would prioritise making a joke over preserving <laughs> anyone else's feelings. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a bit worried that I'm sort of, you know, as a woman trading in uh, troublesome ideas, i.e., that a woman's value is. It's about what she looks like and not what she says, which is obviously not why we get into political podcasting. No. But having said that... <laughs> well, I think what we'd like to maintain is a sense of equality that both of our values come from what we look like. <laughs> Just to be clear on Pod Save the UK, we believe in true gender equality. We believe there should be superficial judgments handed down regardless of your gender identity. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. The, the two genders are fit and not fit. <laughs> Look, it's been uh, just 15 days uh, after MPs returned from their summer holidays and Parliament is somehow in recess again. Uh, But this time it's not for a holiday, it's for the party conference season, which is the opposite of a holiday. Uh, The uh, major political parties in Britain uh, have a conference, they have them one after each other, and it's like Woodstock for dickheads uh, (laughs) over and over again. Uh, There's still uh, plenty that's been going on, though, since our last show. Yeah, so last night Rishi Sunak took the very unusual step of releasing a video statement that seemed to confirm these leaked reports that have been going around that he's essentially... He's going to weaken some of the, the government's green pledges. The measures expected to be set out in a hastily arranged, might we add, press conference today include delaying a ban on the sales of new petrol and diesel cars. That's uh, due to come out in sort of 2030 and watering down the plan to phase out gas boilers. The PM said the government was committed to reaching net zero carbon emissions by 2050, but in a more proportionate way. This is what Carmaker Ford has said this morning about pushing back the car deadline. Our business needs three things 
gains from the UK government, ambition, commitment and consistency. A relaxation of 2030 would undermine all three. Meanwhile, energy company E.ON has said this is a misstep on many levels. Yeah, I mean, if the car companies and the energy companies are criticising your policy on climate change, you're a heartbeat away from Ronald McDonald (laughs) and Colonel Sanders castigating you for animal cruelty. Um, On the other side of the uh, political fence, uh, the Labour Party, their leader, Keir Starmer, has been a romantic sojourn uh, to Paris uh, to woo Emmanuel Macron and uh, gave him an Arsenal shirt uh, with Macron printed on the back. Uh, So Emmanuel Macron is a Marseille fan, but Keir Starmer is an Arsenal fan. So he's bought... Macron a present that he would like for himself. Like, it's oh like the God. Simpsons episode when Homer buys the bowling ball for Marge. Like, he's bought him a birthday present that he would want himself. And he also, uh, Macron gave Starmer some cufflinks with the Elise logo on them, which is reeks of, <laughs> we haven't bought anything, so we'll go to the nearest <laughs> gift shop. Um, but Starmer was there because he's trying to woo European leaders uh, and he said that he plans to renegotiate Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, which has been leapt on by the right-wing press who are accusing him of betraying Brexit. So how he's going to woo them is acting like one of my old boyfriends that would buy every single person Beck's Odelay. Every birthday, what? every Christmas. He loved Beck and he really wanted everyone to love Beck. Odelay. I'm just saying. Anyway, we've also learned that... Apparently- also, Beck's best album is Midnight Vultures. I'm not going to get into this now, but Midnight Vultures is a better album than Odelay. We don't have time for this. But who does that? Who buys every person they know Beck's Odelay? <laughs> who does that? Anyway, we've also learned that apparently senior government officials spoke to Buckingham Palace at the height of the pandemic to express their concern about Boris Johnson's conduct in office. A BBC documentary revealed that civil servants even discussed suggesting to the Queen that she raised the concerns with Johnson during their private audience. And Wales is slowing down. The Welsh government has made it the first part of the UK to reduce the speed limit in built-up areas from 30 miles to 20 miles an hour. Uh, there's already been some disquiet. A petition against the move has more than 200,000 signatures. But of course, the biggest story of the week is the scandal around Russell Brand. We'll be getting into that in a moment. Uh, Before we do that, just to point you towards our sister podcast, Pod Save the World. This week, hosts Tommy Vitor and Ben Rhodes talk to former Conservative politician and diplomat Rory Stewart about his new book, Politics on the Edge, which The Guardian calls a blistering insider portrait of a nation in decline. Uh, For more breakdown of the world's biggest headlines, search Pod Save the World wherever you get your podcasts. And for a great audio experience, why not listen to Beck's Odelay? <laughs> the Russell Brand story has dominated the news this week. The Sunday Times and Channel 4's dispatchers dropped their bombshell joint investigation at the weekend, accusing Brand of rape, sexual assault, and abuse. Four women have alleged Brand assaulted them between 2006 and 2013 when he was at the height of his fame. He was presenting on BBC Radio and on Channel 4 before moving to Hollywood to star in films. Let's hear a clip from Channel 4's Dispatches programme, Russell Brand in plain sight. I was pushing him away and pushing him away and he wasn't he wasn't backing off at all. And so I ended up having to punch him really hard in the stomach to get him off. And then he, like, finally, then he, like, moved, fell backwards. And I was crying. And he said, oh, I only want to see your mascara run anyway. So that was one of the accusers who was 16 when she had a relationship with Russell Brand. Brand denies the allegations and says that his relationships have been always consensual. Since those allegations were aired, the Met Police said on Monday that it had received a uh, a report of a separate alleged sexual assault in Soho in central London in 2003. The BBC and Channel 4 have launched investigations into the time he was employed by them. Both have also removed programmes featuring him from their streaming services. All the remaining dates of Russell Brand's stand-up tour have been postponed, while his talent agency and two book publishers have parted ways with him. YouTube have suspended his channels from making money from adverts, while the podcast platform Acast said that the adverts were turned off immediately for his Under the Skin podcast. Uh, Meanwhile, the chair of the Culture Committee, Caroline Diniage, has also written to TikTok to clarify whether Brand's still able to monetize content. So Nish, when the rumours started to surface just before the weekend that Channel 4 were going to broadcast a uh, potentially career-ending expose, people were saying it must be a comedian. You're obviously a comedian. Did you know who it would be? Yes. Yes. 
this is a well-known open secret from the comedy circuit. Right. Uh, it's been something that's been talked about, certainly to my knowledge, for at least the last five years. It's something that's been pretty openly discussed uh, in the comedy industry. Um, I think I remember first hearing about it kind of in mid sort of 2017. Subsequent to Dispatches and the Sunday Times expose, Deadline ran a story about an incident that happened on a TV show called Roast Battle where um, jokes were made referencing Brand being an abuser um, and they were removed from the broadcast. That that obviously happened on a studio floor. So at that from that point onwards, it was common knowledge within comedy that there were several allegations about Russell Brand um, and specifically relating to sexual assault. So from from that point onwards, it was well known. It was discussed by multiple comedians in Edinburgh Fringe shows the following year in 2008, in 2018. Like it, it was that well known. But, and, but when you say it was well known, like what was known? Like is it, because I think that's something that, you know, in the documentary, they they talk about this idea in that is in plain sight. You know that it's it's on the line, but you don't actually know that it's crossed it. Well, look, uh, to be completely honest with you, the story that I had heard was relating to a sexual assault. It was not covered in the documentary. Right. So it was a it was a it was a very specific and serious allegation. I was not aware of any of the stories in the documentary. I was surprised watching it how far back this had gone. Th- those weren't stories that I'd actually heard about. Um so it is possible that there's more allegations to come. And I think, look, I think this is a real moment for everybody to consider how this was allowed to happen and how this was allowed to go on for so long and what are the systemic and institutional failings. And I think if you look at Russell Brand's IMDb page, you see that his television work in Britain starts to dry up around 2018, 2019. And that's simply because increasingly people were just not willing to work with him. Everyone was afraid to talk about it Mm. because of the threat of lawsuits, you know. And so the only power people had was to withdraw participation from shows involving Russell Brand. And that that goes for everybody. That goes for comedians. That goes for people that work in production. And you can see from his IMDb page that he starts to increasingly only work in America and work on his own podcast channel and YouTube channel. And that is an example of... I think, a systemic failing. You know, watching it as a male comedian, cisgendered, heterosexual male comedian, you feel a certain sense of guilt and a certain sense of complicity because you've been working with production companies and producers who are providing an infrastructure that allows predators to thrive. I've been reading a lot and been following a lot of how the story's been covered. And there is this tendency, which I think is not an incorrect impulse to analyse the wider cultural context that Brand Mm. comes out of. In the 2000s, the kind of um, sort of after effect of 90s lad culture and the misogyny that was so culturally entrenched. But I think to focus too much on that would be to take away from the fact that this stuff is still happening. Mm. There there are still people working in comedy who are the subject of open secrets. There are still people who work in comedy that we can't name because, again, of the threat of lawsuits. And there are still people working in comedy who people will say, oh, we don't send young women into their dressing rooms. Now, at that stage for me, that you should you should be sacked from that job. Absolutely. When you watch the Dispatches documentary and they talk about Brand's conduct in 2005 when he was presenting the add-on show for the reality TV show Big Brother, all of that conduct should be at the very least a sackable offence. If you can't have someone be around young women, they have no place in any kind of workplace. And the tolerance of it is something that we are going to have to actually have a reckoning with. There has to be accountability for Russell Brand, but there also has to be accountability for the decision makers who facilitated Russell Brand. For example, one of the allegations, one of the accusers called a talent agency to tell them about this accusation and they responded 
by sending a letter from his lawyers. That, that, that was the response. I, I don't know who that came from, but she contacted the talent agency and got a response from Russell Brown's lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't hold decision makers accountable, we will continue to perpetuate this culture of abuse. And that's something that I think cuts across every industry. there's there's clearly a specific problem that comes from this idea that the talent, which is this awful word that people use to describe presenters, which is a complete misnomer. At the end of the day, you're reading from a goddamn autocue. You're not a genius. You should be. We should be eminently replaceable. And that there is clearly a specific problem that comes from uh, indulging these kind of people that are perceived to be kind of great men. That's clearly an issue. But the thing that cuts across all of the industries is there is never a moment where systems are interrogated. We have a tendency to prosecute the individual and allow the system to go unconsidered. I guess my question is, why did people feel like they weren't able to report the abuse? Or if they did report the abuse why were those complaints not taken seriously? We've either got a situation where the processes themselves are inadequate or people just feel like they can't use them. Why are we relying on people being brave? Mm. That's the question. Because the only people, and I really mean this, the only people that come out of this with anything any credibility are the victims who have been brave enough to step forward and the journalists who have worked extremely hard to produce rigorous pieces of journalism so that they could get around the threats of a very powerful man's lawyers. And until we start asking ourselves the hard questions, we're never, ever, ever going to progress out of this. Until men start asking the hard questions about how we conduct ourselves, until people in powerful positions start asking questions about why they're indulging the whims of predators and monsters. Until any of that happens, nothing is going to change. No, absolutely. I mean, you use the word systemic failure there. And like, you know, this account is just numerous systemic failures over and over again. It it shouldn't be left to the fourth estate to to be doing this, to be fighting for justice for these women. It should not be the job of press to be doing this. There's that's that tells you that something has gone very, very wrong, not only with policing, but also in kind of workplace protections. Also just in terms of like, you know, the support we give victims of sexual violence in terms of, you know, being believed on a kind of personal level. It's all gone horribly wrong because we live in a culture where, you know, women are routinely dehumanised, where they're not believed. It's propped up by a legal system that never prosecutes criminals. My God, we have so much work to do because one in four women have been sexually assaulted. That's the stats. Mm. That's the facts. In fact, I had a little look this morning on Rape Crisis uh, website. They said in the last year that 798,000 women were sexually assaulted. So that's one in 30. So if you know 30 women, one of them statistically has been raped or sexually assaulted in the last 12 months. This is not a legacy problem. I completely agree with you. But like, you know, perpetrators... What is going on to victimise that many people? You re- it requires a lot of perpetrators. I just think we just need to do so much better with our education around consent. Like it is genuinely urgent. Yeah. And again, you know, we're thinking, we're talking a lot about like the, the nasty naughties, but it's important to remember that attitudes aren't necessarily getting better. There was a study that came out recently that found that men under 30 are most resistant to gender equality uh, policies. They see women as competition. It's the Andrew Tate effect, you could maybe call it. But I mean, you know, they in this study, they compared the under 30s with other older generations and, and found them to be most resistant, like mm. more so than the boomers. That's crazy. Yeah. I just, yeah, it, it just, it really hit home to me how far we have to go um, and, yeah, just the lack of progress in this area. And you're absolutely right. Two of the people who are supportive of Russell Brand who have been publicly, one of them is Andrew Tate, a man who's accused of rape and human trafficking and has bragged about his misogyny. Uh, The other is Elon Musk, you know, who's one of the richest people in the world and who recently bought a mass communications platform seemingly on a whim and is using that mass communications platform essentially to speak supportively about Russell Brand spreading 
conspiracy theories uh, on the internet. And on that, we actually have had a WhatsApp message from a listener uh, called Maddie. Uh, thank you so much for writing in, Maddie. Um, and this is what Maddie says. Uh, Hi, PSUK team. Although the Russell Brand allegations aren't strictly a political story, he strikes me as a prime case study of someone who slid to the right and then used its conspiracy rhetoric to defend himself from credible allegations. The whole martyr to the mainstream media shtick. I remember as a teen being excited by his leftist ideas about radical community, but I can't help wondering if his shift further and further right since then is an effort to shore up power and security ahead of a backlash. I'd love to know what you both think as people with insight into British media, and especially Coco as a journalist, and what this can tell us, if anything, about where and how we source our political beliefs. Love, and thanks for being the highlight of my Thursday, Maddie. Oh, thank you so much for for writing into us, uh, Maddie. I mean, when I've been thinking lots about conspiracy theories recently, not just in terms of Russell Brand, but just in general. And I always think back to one of my first kind of interactions of the science in, in of conspiracy theory, which was John Ronson. You know, yeah. John Ronson famously did uh, a kind of deep dive into people that believe um, in conspiracy theories. And one of the things he, he honed in on was that a lot of people who buy into this it's because they've previously been tricked or there's some sort of abuse of trust that has happened in their past. There is a reality that the average citizen uh, has a right to say that perhaps their trust has been abused by the political system, by the media. Hillsborough uh, springs to mind. I'm all for being critical of the media. I think more criticism is great. More accountability is great. I'd like to see more media literacy in school. But these conspiracy theories aren't critical thinking. They're kind of the opposite. They like they they want simple solutions to complex problems. You know that idea that like anyone that's been to therapy knows two things can be true at once. As much as I have sympathy for people who distrust politics and distrust institutions, at some point you just sort of like grow up. In terms of Russell Brand though, what I would say is it doesn't surprise me that someone who allegedly abused their power sees abuses of power everywhere, yeah, right? right? Like if you've been a cheat, you probably imagine there's plenty of cheating around. Yeah. If you've been protected by institutions, no, no wonder you think that other institutions are being protected too. So, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't surprise me that this thing is happening. Um, in terms of, yeah, whether he slid to the right to shore himself up, I mean, I don't know. But definitely just on that point about media and trust in the media, like it's fine to be critical, but there has to be a limit to that and it has to be constructive. And yeah, choosing choosing to to get your information from like credible places that are held to account in some way should be more in my view, but have some sort of rules and regulations that abide by is critical. I will say this, uh, about a year ago, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, we're both comedians, and I said, it's incredible, he's monetized this kind of conspiracy thinking. Also, it's very strange because he's in living in England, but all the videos relate to right-wing American conspiracy theories. There's a lot of stuff about Fauci in there. It's a very strange mixture. And I said to my friend, God, it's so weird you know, the, I guess this is what he's had to, this is what he's doing to make money now because he's not able to make it anywhere else. And she actually said, no, it's absolutely perfect because when the allegations do come out, he's going to say this, this and this. And what she did was essentially walk me through the beat of the video that he put out on Friday night to get ahead of the allegations. She literally said it was going to be, uh, the, but I've been questioning the mainstream media this is what happens when they question the mainstream media. A lot of not specific allegations, but kind of vague sort of, uh, you know, vague senses of some kind of unnamed conspiracy. It, it was exactly the beats of the video. And uh, it was an extraordinarily prescient conversation. So if you've been affected by the issues we've been talking about in the UK, Rape Crisis offers support for rape and sexual abuse on 0808 802 9999 in England and Wales. Uh, it's 0808 801 0302 in Scotland or 0800 0246 991 in Northern Ireland. In the US, RAIN offers support on 800 656 4673. In Australia, support is available at 1800 Respect. So that's 180. 0037-732. Other international helplines can also be found at iBiblio, so ibiblio.org forward slash RCIP forward slash INTERNL dot HTML. We'll put all of that in the show notes. I know that was a lot to take in, but uh, there is support out there. There should be more, but if you need it, don't be afraid to ask for it. Pod Save the UK is brought to you by Even the Royals on Wondery. 
When you take a closer look at what it means to be royalty, you'll see that it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. On Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, they pull back the curtain on royal families, past and present, from all over the world. And you can listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. From one of the most infamous royals in history, Marie Antoinette, but everything you know about her is wrong. Or Catherine de' Medici. History branded her as a cold and power-obsessed manipulator, saying she was responsible for one of the most devastating massacres in French history. But she was an orphan who spent her life as a powerless hostage, and her determination to rise to power led her to some dark places and some desperate measures. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Six months since Baroness Louise Casey released her damning report on the UK's largest police force, the London Metropolitan Police. It found the Met to be institutionally racist, sexist and homophobic. The Casey review was set up by the Met after one of its officers, Wayne Cousins, raped and murdered Sarah Everard. A month before the review was published, another officer in Cousins' unit, David Carrick, was jailed after admitting to 45 rapes over a 17-year period. Here's Baroness Casey explaining what she found at the Met. Institutional racism, institutional sexism, institutional misogyny um, um, and homophobia are definitely present across the organisation. We have weighty evidence that supports those findings. And finally, I think the Met um, is not able to assure all of us that its officers are of sufficient integrity and standards to be serving police officers. So it needs to clean itself up um, and use independent people to help them do that. Casey's grim findings included rape cases being dropped because evidence was kept in a broken freezer, a Muslim officer finding bacon in his locker and a Sikh officer having his beard cut. There were managers advising officers to delete incriminating social media posts and a firearms unit where officers held competitions to make female colleagues cry. And in the months since, it keeps on coming. In August, another former Met officer was jailed for raping a fellow officer and a 16-year-old girl. The judge said the Met should be ashamed of its abysmal response to the colleague's complaint, saying that they were more interested in looking out for one of their own. Earlier this month, five former Met officers also pleaded guilty to sharing grossly racist messages on WhatsApp. And this is just London. The Met is one of six forces in England in special measures. This week, the Met revealed over a thousand officers are either suspended or on restricted duties. While a third of officers have been removed from Cousin and Carrick's unit, the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command, which Louise Casey had called to be disbanded. And on the day we record this, there's the news that a police officer will be charged with the murder of Chris Cabber, who was shot dead in a police operation in South London last year. So six months on from Baroness Casey's damning assessment, what is being done? Leroy Logan served in the Met for 30 years, retiring in 2013 uh, as a superintendent. In that time, he ran policing for the London Olympics and was a founding member and chair of the Black Police Association. Thank you so much for joining us, Leroy. Welcome to Pod Save the UK. Yeah, great. Thanks for the invite. We have a lot of very serious things to discuss with you, but first, we just wanted to have a little listen to this. Lord, may you protect your servant, Leroy. Please keep him safe for his police training. Attention! And grant us the wisdom to accept his decision. At least this way, Dad, I can change things. Get out of my house! John Boyega in the 2020 BBC film Red, White and Blue, part of Steve McQueen's small act series. Um, Leroy, what's that like as an experience? Because that's... John life-changing. Boyega's, it yeah? was life-changing. I mean, um, when I first got approached about this, about 2016, I thought, 
it's a bit of a wind up. <laughs> uh, because you know, when you're on that journey, you think nothing really sort of special around it. But um, when someone like Steve McQueen says yeah. he wants to make a film out of it, and then John Boyega wants to play me, yeah. You start thinking, well, that's pretty cool. So, um, <laughs> and my grandchildren think I'm pretty cool. So, <laughs> it's a life changing experience that um, has opened so many different gates of people, opportunities, and uh, so many windows that you know I, I thought were firmly closed. I'm really, really, very, very grateful, very humbled. For those who don't know the story or haven't seen the film, which I would really urge people to, the Small Axe series in general is extraordinary. Uh, and Red, White and Blue is an incredible piece of filmmaking. I'd really urge people to seek it out and watch it. Um, but can you explain why there was so much disquiet in your family when you said you were going to try and join the police? Well, the policing experience in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up wasn't a very good one, similar to what it is now, you know. Yeah. Um, very, very heavy-handed policing that led to the Brixton riots. Um, and my dad was really pleased that I was a research scientist. So there was that sense of, well, why would you turn your back on science to become a police officer who that they hound us and, and persecute us and um, criminalise us? And also the fact that... Um, in 82, when I was going through the application process, my dad was badly beaten up by police over a traffic matter. And he was in his late 50s and there was no reason yeah. for it. And and how he found out, which is in the film, so it'd be good if people check it out, he wasn't best pleased. And he, he, he saw it as a double whammy in terms of turning my back on science and becoming uh, joining the ranks of the officers who beat him up, which I can understand. Uh, but to his um, real character and, and wisdom, he, he did support me in the end. It was interesting hearing you, you just said in passing there, like, mm. oh, you know, the policing was heavy handed as it is now. It was mm. interesting to hear that comparison because, you know, you might think even though it's not making enough progress, things are getting better with policing. But actually, as someone who's got the long view, maybe not. I, am I right in thinking that what you heard in the Casey Review was no surprise whatsoever? No, no. In fact, it mirrored the McPherson inquiry uh, in the late 90s, uh, looking into the death of Stephen Lawrence and how the incompetence, the racism and the corruption of those officers prevented um, those suspects from being charged. Only two till this date. Uh, has been put before the courts and they're in prison at the moment. And we know one of the suspects <laughs> died without even being spoken to by police. So, yeah, it, 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 it's very similar. And um, it really needs uh, the Met to really acknowledge that they have a problem. And the police service around the country. Mm. If, you, if you don't acknowledge it fully, properly, you'll go back to your default position when it's cool to do so, you know, when the heat is off. And at the moment, the heat is off because uh, the pol political um, will is that officers can't do any wrong and, you know, they just get on with what they want to get on with. And I think also Chrisetta Dick, um, who was a commissioner, really allowed the toxicity of the culture to go totally off the chart. It, in terms of the political will, I thought it was really interesting that you brought that up because the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, has been critical of the police very recently but around issues of uh, the police Being celebrating diversity, and yeah, and using the word woke. I, I yeah. mean, I read stuff like that and think the Home Secretary is not a serious person. Like, that that's how I feel. I have no idea how you respond to those kind of remarks. <laughs> it makes me sad. It makes me feel like the Home Secretary is a dangerous person because she's into dog whistle politics that she doesn't realise encourages um, rogue officers to be totally... Uh, disrespectful and treat people without any dignity think they can get away with it um, you know run roughshod not only on the public but some of their colleagues as well she doesn't realise that when you say oh you know don't be um, building relationships with the community whether, whether it's taking a knee or you know even being cheerful at carnival yeah. that that's nothing to do with wokeism it's around building relationships you cannot police without the public you know, so Robert Peel said, the police are the public, public are the police. That's what it needs. So if you're cutting your um, channels, your bridges with um, 
with the public, you're, you're literally like policing with one arm tied behind your back. Um, so I, I, I find that she set back uh, policing in so many ways. Um, I, I didn't think Pretty Patel was going to be trumped by her. Um, but yeah, Suhaila Brevman is, I think, one of the least effective and um, totally out of her depth. And I don't think she understands the impact of her words. But it's not just on policing, it's on immigration, you know, stopping the boats, everything. It's just, it beggars belief what so, she comes up with. You know, you articulate there the police of the public, the public of the police. Mm-hmm. I think that's important that said to sort of hit home that, you know, the, the fact that public confidence in the police is at historically low levels is a problem for maintaining law and order. I did come across this article recently where they were talking about the investigations into uh, the, frankly, too many officers who have allegations of sexual assault um, levied against them. And there was, they, they were talking about the paradox, which is the more you investigate these officers because you want to increase public confidence that we're sort of, you know, we're finding, we're getting to the rot, the more those stories come to light and therefore, the more the public loses confidence because they hear more stories. How do you square that circle? Well, you have to dig as deep as the rot is. And unfortunately, you're not going to attract the best um, candidates. Unfortunately, some candidates get drawn into this. Oh, I could be joining the type of people I like into control and power and, you know, that, that sort of white nationalist type of agenda. Because um, white supremacy is a real issue in the police. Uh, they don't celebrate diversity. That's why there's so many black officers uh, leaving in the first two years. You're four times more likely to to leave the police service um, if you're black than in white officers, especially in the first two years. So it it it, it is a problem that we we're not getting to grips with supervisors. You know, sergeants and inspectors, especially. Get a grip of your constables. Now, it's not a popularity vote when you have to hold your officers to account, maintaining that critical distance. And as a result of that, we're seeing that a lot of supervisors allowing, they're complicit by the silence. They're not stepping in where they see inappropriate behaviour, uh, whether it's racism, sexism. Um, they're, the supervisors somehow are um, protecting them. Um, and, you know, one of the things that um, the case review showed was the Department for uh, um, Professional Standards or an internal complaints people, they were part of the problem as well. They, they were um, protect, appear to be protecting people in a way that um, the, the process of misconduct hearings was drawn out. Um, the Federation, which is the police union in a way, of, of, of the rank-and-file officers they were seen to be dragging things out. So you, you, you've got these um, organisations that should be better at what they're doing because they, they, you need those internal checks and balances, the supervisors, the federation, the internal complaints, all these things are necessary. And obviously the ethical leadership from um, the senior leaders to, to, and right across the organisation to hold people to account. You, you cannot allow things to just... Oh, no, no, it doesn't matter. Because, you know, one of the things I remember joining um, the Met in 83 was something, if you couldn't take a joke, you shouldn't have joined. So in the, in the um, term of humour, you can be racist, sexist, homophobic, you name it. Because it's just a joke. So if you're reacting, you're just getting a bit, you know, a bit too thin-skinned, you know, you've got a chip on your shoulder. Well, I always tell them I have two chips on my shoulder, so I'm even... <laughs> You're balanced well out. I'm balanced, man. <laughs> nice. So what's your, how are you feeling in terms of Sir Mark Rowley's ability to stamp this out? I mean, I remember reading uh, a quote from him. He seemed really obsessed with this word institutional. He would not accept this word institutional. Is that important that he accepts it or not? What, what do you think? Where's your confidence? I think He's the next it commissioner, is important right? to the public that acknowledge it, especially the black community around racism, especially women and girls when it comes to sexism and misogyny, he has to acknowledge it as a systemic failure because the definition really is if you've got disproportionalities in your police powers or internal cultural um, hostility and you're not doing anything about it, well, the system's allowing it to happen. So you've got to acknowledge you've got a problem. If not you're going to go and do the same things um, maybe two, maybe ten years later. 
But, you know, when they feel that the pressure's off, they default back because that's how they're wired because it attracts a certain type of mindset. And I, I remember when I was a, a police inspector, I went to Hendon. So this is like the, um, the sort of late 90s. And um, I remember seeing the officers, or recruits rather, coming in and within about two or three weeks, they talk like old sweats, you know, like they've got two or three years in, you know, the, the vernacular, the swagger and everything. I, I, in my book, I call it an internal radicalization. It, it's, a, it's just like they got totally brainwashed. And so if, if you're not clear on your beliefs and values and your principles, you can get easily assimilated into that stuff because, you know, you want to be part of the team. You don't want to be seen as being, you know, different. Well, I didn't mind being feeling different because I, I made it clear I'm a black man who happens to be a cop not a cop who happens to be black. So I will integrate in, I'll work with my team, I'll be a good supervisor, I'll be a public servant, which I know I am, throughout my career. And if I need to step in and, and deal with officers to develop them or even sanction them, so be it. I'm not going to be buying into the culture, blindly, um, you know, falling into these loyalties and, and some of them, are extremely toxic, as we've seen with uh, Pad P and others, other specialist units. But that's and that's why it's so important that we use the word institutional and systemic, mm, because there is a tendency, there's a willingness to try and portray someone like Wayne Cousins as being an outlier in an otherwise functional system. But what the picture you're painting is that the rot in terms of misogyny, sexism, racism, and homophobia, it's it's baked into the institution. So they're turning yeah. out people who yeah. have those beliefs. Yeah. And so uh, going back to your question about Mark Riley, can he do the job? Well, he was around when Chrisella Dick was allowing that to happen. And he, he's come up through the ranks. He's been steeped in that culture. Um, now, he might have had, um, as we say in uh, the Christian reference books, a Damascus Road conversion. <laughs> I don't know. It might be. But he, he's still not showing his real openness to change by acknowledging the systemic failures, institutional racism, sexism, etc. So you, 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 I, I'm, the jury's still out for me around what he's, he's actually going to do. So far, he seems to be um, lancing the boil to some extent with bringing, um, was it over 100 officers either on misconduct or suspended? Um, so just to clarify on that, so in the past year, 100 Met officers have been sacked for gross misconduct, That's which right, is okay. up 66% yep. of the normal rate. But there are uh, a 1,000 officers who are currently suspended or on restricted duties. Yeah, yeah. So the, the yeah. numbers are... Uh, it's you know, eye-watering all the same. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's a horrific state of affairs. Yeah. You know, they say you're bad apple in yeah. the barrel. Yeah. I think the barrel is rotten. <laughs> and and that's, that's the thing at the moment. They don't know how bad it is. So... You know, we are seeing, I think, the beginning of a very difficult period for the Met because, as you say, the more bad news is going to turn off the candidates that you need and austerity had already reduced the numbers. Uh, they were trying to push through a lot and not vetting people properly and, you know, allowing all sorts of uh, strange people into policing. You know, it's going to be really challenging, to be quite honest. Um it, 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 it's going to be worse, I think, for the next year or so than a lot of people anticipate. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned austerity there because that has definitely been something that people have spoken about a lot as you kind of articulated, like not being able to suspend officers because you can't recruit more because you're not paying, you know, salaries and things like that. But I, I wonder sometimes if too much of the conversation gets lost in the austerity point. If there was better funding, there would still need to be loads of work, Right. Or, or actually, is that a significant thing? And that's the first thing that we as voters should be trying to kind of push for from our political leaders is like, get get the police more budget. Well, funding, I think it's partly funding in terms of getting the right quality officers mm -hmm. and getting as reflective an organisation as possible. Because the, the more you reflect the community you're serving, wherever it is in the UK, the, the more effective you are in serving the needs of the public. And, you know, there's an extricable link between how you serve the needs of your diverse personnel so you're better equipped to serve the needs of your diverse public. So you need the right quality officers 
as reflective of, of the public as possible. And they need to have good pay and conditions. I mean, one of the things around austerity, not only reducing the numbers of the officers, but their paying conditions was eroded. And so you've now got officers working for longer. So I, I signed up for 30 years. I did 30 years. Some officers signed up for 30 years. They're now doing 35, possibly 37 years. So they're working for longer, for less money in the long term. Because even when they get pension, that gets taxed. So, you know, morale in the police is rock bottom. And then remember, when they lost so many officers, which to some extent they've um, got back, but you've not got the experienced officers. So there's been this massive drain, brain drain of experienced officers. Policing is, is going through this firefighting phase. They're just reacting from one event to another. They're not being proactive. Uh, and, and, you know, the really weird thing is that the Met is still the envy of the world you know, or police service in the UK, because, you know, other countries around the world can't believe police officers don't have to patrol with sidearms um, and they are very effective when they're doing it right. But at the moment, it, it, it's in a, a sorry state, but I hope with the right leadership, the right people and working with um, communities in a way that builds relationships. I, I mean, there was, I don't know if you've seen this WhatsApp um, um, video where uh, an officer is um, playing basketball with a group of black youngsters. It's, a, it's like a school setting. I think it may be a safer schools officer. And he slam dunks the ball. And they love him. You know, I suppose Suella Breverman and said, that's woke. Oh he should God. be policing, you know, the heavy handed. But they will, they'd be more likely to talk to him about what's going on, where the guns are, where the, where the drugs are, or who's where the next beef is, then, you know, if you have a group of officers tasering them, you know. And that's one of the reasons why I set up a, a charity called Void Youth. Um, it's based in Hackney. Uh, set it up over 20 years ago. And, in fact, Neville Lawrence is one of our patrons. And it's around helping young people to know their rights and responsibilities and, and developing positive peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. Because I know within young people, um, they don't help themselves as they should. Sometimes it's the parenting, sometimes it's the home, the community. But we have to help our young people to buy into their communities and work with authority figures. Um, so, yeah, it, it's things that we we really need to, to understand that... Um, We've we got a tough time and, and, and the public have to step up. Um, so if you want to come and work with Voyage, please, you know, <laughs> go on our website, check it out. So, Lira, I, I, I do want to talk to you um, about sexual violence and rape because we've just been talking about Russell Brand. Yeah. And of course, one of the, you know, the criticism levied at these poor victims who are so brave for coming forward is why didn't you go to the police? They spent a time looking, a bit of time looking into just the, the, the huge problem of reporting sexual violence to the police, you know, the, how, how it can feel like you're the one being interrogated, how they go through your phone, how it takes so long, how ra rape kits get apparently left in fridges with people's lunch, how people can be insulting. Like, I get why women don't go to the police. And I also keep thinking about this cultural point that Nish and I were talking about, about how so many perps don't even realise that what they're doing is assault because the, the language around consent is so poor. And I'm going to be completely honest with you, Leroy, I'm... I, I may be hopeless now that mm. the police can actually be a good force for women and protecting women. Do you think that I'm too hopeless and that there are models around the world where this is working? No, or the, honestly, the, like there's um, models around the country. You know, the, 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 I, I know um, Ten Valley has been doing a lot of great work. You know, it's down to leadership. If you get that ethical leadership, you get that real sort of. Um, transformational type of approach where you work with people, get the best out of them. You, you, you see where the needs are and, 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 and also to, to ensure that you have those checks and balances so that things are not diverting off track. You know, you can't live in your office. I mean, one of the things I used to love doing is creeping up on my offices. So I'll jump on my bike and I'll cycle around Hackney, you know, and, and I'll catch them. Oh, okay. I'll watch what they're doing. That's amazing, I, by I the give, way. I'm giving them feedback. And, yeah. oh, and, and they're, they're not expecting to see me on my bike, yeah. you know. And, 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 and as a result of that, I want to ensure that my strategy is being ro been rolled out by my officers with the impact and the outcomes I want and what the public deserve.
I can't just live by a spreadsheet or a computer screen. I've got to go out and confirm. Um, and it's also good for me to see how things have moved on, hopefully for the better. And, and, but getting to your point, there are, there are examples of, of good leadership. I know there's several forces in special measures, and I suppose HMIC, uh, Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary, are actually getting their act together, finally, holding these larger forces, you know, the Met, uh, Greater Manchester Police, etc., and starting to say, OK, we're not just going to be passively um, coming to look at you and giving you advance warning so that they can tick all the boxes and then move on. No, bring in um, those checks, you know, um, unannounced checks, really get into supporting those units that need that support, not to protect them, but um, to hold them to account. So I, I know it's, you know, they say the, um, the night is darkest just before the dawn. I, it is dark, but I don't want people to be totally hopeless. There are examples. And um, to be quite honest, we, 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 I'm not hopeless. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still hopeful that it, it can be turned around. People have to come together and ask the right sort of questions and um, ensure if we need to go to the courts, because I find the courts are one of the best places to hold police to account. Um, Patsy Stevenson, you know, one of the young people yes. and one of the young women arrested at the Sarah Everard um, vigil. She's just uh, been compensated. And because she was not willing to just give up, you know, and and and, and we know that the, the Sarah Everard vigil was a real turning, uh, it was a turning point for a lot of people because they saw all of a sudden, hold on here, police are not as objective and reasonable as we thought because there's a lot of people I mean, used to think probably, we trust the police anytime you're probably familiar with this kind of growing call to abolish the police mm. which is coming from lots of uh, quarters of activism from you know feminist uh, activism but also for people of color i mean i would just you know as someone who has dedicated their life to policing but has also seen the rot what are your thoughts on this notion of abolishing the police and uh, as i understand it just for our listeners as i understand it abolishing the police doesn't mean dismantle entirely the police force but rather take certain services it, that it is frankly failing at stuff like sexual violence um you know issues of community uh, and religious community uh, uh, problems and putting them away from policing what yeah. what's your thoughts no, on that no i i i agree that um police needs to be restructured in a big way. Um, I, I, I don't think they're equipped to deal with people with um, mental health. Um, um, we know there's shortfalls when it comes to dealing with women and sexual offences. So part of the uh, new approach is not defund the police, but it's actually the public health approach. So that, that, that shows that it's not just police have to deal with this. There's like a triage approach. So you're working with health practitioners, you know, specialists. So you, you don't deploy just police officers to um, a mental health case or if you have to section them or not. Um, you have uh, a triage approach when it comes to sexual offences. So again, it's not just seen as an enforcement issue because, um, you know, the... the the informant uh, and the victim needs as much of a, a sens sensitive care and, uh, and, and a more softer approach, which a lot of officers are not used to, you know, because if you think about uh, most of the time, they're flying from one event to another, blue lights and sirens. They go to an event or an incident and they escalate everything. Very rarely they de-escalate. So one of the things that I'm, I'm working with, uh, with Middlesex University and, and other collaborators, seeing how we can assist officers to be more trauma-informed and trauma-responsive. Because it's all well and good when you see someone is traumatised and you ignore it, you have to be responsive to that. And, and, and so, especially when you're dealing with vulnerable people, that, you know, the thing about child Q and that young lady being strip-searched you know, uh, well, actually, she's intimately searched on a menstrual cycle in a school, which must have been the safest place. Those officers, quite rightly, have been uh, told they're going to go through a misconduct um, in the last few days because you cannot do that on the reasonable... There was no reasonable grounds. So you violated that young lady um, in a school. So if they were trauma-informed and trauma-responsive, they would realise, no, we can't do this. Even if they said, oh, oh, she might have some drugs in her. All right, get the appropriate adult, the mother, the, 
the parents, whoever, the family members, take them, to, you know, to ensure that they can do this thing in a responsive and respectful and dignified way. So the, the, these are all the things that we, people need to start um, seeing every day. It's not just, oh, when the heat is on. They, you, know, you know, trust is earned. And there's certain people um, where trust has been rock bottom, like the black community, and now we've got women and girls you have to earn their trust as well as the black community. So they've got a bigger case and they've got a lot to do and they'd better crack on and do it and do it effectively and in a sustainable way. Um, we've got to let you go. We so appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I just wanted to ask you one final question that, you know, we started this interview talking about you being a young man in your 20s who left a kind of promising science career behind to join uh, the police and the disquiet that caused within your own family. I just wanted to ask you, what would you say to yourself, your equivalent today, a young black man in his 20s, considering joining the police, maybe leaving a different, more promising career behind? What would you say to that person today? I would say do, do a lot more um, research. You know the organisation you're going into, how it works, get a mentor, um, and... Understand that it's not going to be perfect. <laughs> it's going to be challenging. And, and, I, and that's why I'm really pleased that they, they're bringing in the policing degree uh, before they, they even apply. So that it shows your commitment to policing in, 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 in a sense that it's not just around control and power. You understand your role, you, what skills you have to bring in before you even apply sometimes and or you can do the degree during your first uh, few years in the organization we need to professionalize policing unfortunately the perception is the police are a bunch of thugs so um yeah but still join so you know if my grandson says granddad you know i, I want to join i wouldn't stop him but i'll make sure he's prepared as much as possible to be an effective officer brilliant thank you so thank much you so for your much. time NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. So, Coco, tell us, who is the PSUK Hero of the Week? So, our Hero of the Week is a Danish contemporary artist called Jens Harning. So, he creates socially conscious, I guess you'd describe it as like political work. And basically, he was commissioned to recreate an earlier piece of work of his that represented the average income as banknotes, right? So, he gets this commission, he's lent over half a million kroner to do the work. But when he sends the work back that's complete, it's actually just a bunch of empty frames. The series of frames is called Take the Money and Run. The work, by the way, was displayed, but then the museum asked for the money back, to which Harning refused. He claimed that taking the money was the artwork. The museum accused him of theft. So this is what he said. <laughs> this is what he told Danish Radio. And I quote, The work is that I have taken their money. It's not theft. It is breach of contract, and breach of contract is part of the work. He added, I encourage other people who have working conditions as miserable as mine to do the same. If they're sitting in some shitty job and not getting paid and are actually being asked to pay money to go to work, then grab what you can and beat it. So if you're probably wondering, <laughs> why is this being included on a political podcast? Aside from it just being really funny and one of my personal interests to follow the madness of the art world, never forget... That a couple of years ago at Art Basel, an artist stuck a banana 
to the wall, said it was art, then another performance artist ate it, leaving <laughs> all critics around the world to write these deep op-eds being like, what does it mean when someone eats the work? So, I mean, I, I love all of this. But also there is just a general question, political question, which is about bad work. Work yeah. doesn't pay. It's not giving you the security. It's becoming more precarious. And at some point, successive governments need to address this problem of bad, unfulfilling work. It's not always on the agenda, but this is a deep-seated problem that is bubbling up. And so actually, Jens Harning pushed this <laughs> to the top of the agenda in the most hilarious and flamboyant way imaginable. And for that reason, he is our hero of the week. <laughs> we should probably mention that a court has asked him to uh, pay the money back, ordered actually, not asked, um, which, you know, is maybe not, quite the ending that we wanted no. but also at the same time the court order is probably also part of the work so <laughs> you know it's great um so that leaves you with the job that you love nish so who's your psuk villain of the week well it's liz truss it's always liz truss i don't know how many more <laughs> weeks i can continue talking about her but she's been claiming cash from the public fund awarded to former prime ministers around their offices despite serving for 49 days talk about work paying like it's unbelievable she's already claimed twenty three thousand three hundred and ten pounds uh in her first five months after resigning the pro rata on Liz Truss is absolutely <laughs> spectacular. Clearly, the only job that pays now, based on what we can see, is being a shit Prime Minister because she is absolutely <laughs> coining it in and she did an absolutely shit job. She's also writing an absolutely by the sounds of things, dog shit book uh, called 10 Years to Save the West, the title of which and the subject matter seems to be indulging some pretty unpleasant conspiracy theories that come from the hard right. But the problem with this is what is the continued impact and influence on the Tory party? One of the things that she called for in a recent public address was a rowing back of uh, net zero policies. And Rishi Sunak appears to be dancing to that tune. So we've got someone who is objectively fucking shit at her job, <laughs> continuing to have an influence on the person who's taken over from her. I don't know at what point are we able to exile her to Elba like Napoleon? Is there a way we can put Liz Truss on an island with no phones or internet? I, it's the continued sort of shit stain on British public life that is Liz Truss is, <laughs> needs desperately to be cleaned up. She's a skid mark on the underpants of British <laughs> politics. Well, um, we do love to get your emails and comments into the show, but we also really love hearing your voices. And we've had this lovely voice note in from Clara. Hi. Um, I've been, like, disenfranchised with politics for most of my life. I'm, I'm 19 now. Um, I'm an art student. I grew up with an immigrant mother. So not being involved in politics has never really like been an option for me. When I was probably like 12 or 13, um, I got really like panicked about climate change and kind of growing up with that and seeing how the government treated people like me from similar backgrounds and less privileged backgrounds than mine and how they were ignoring us, you know, when we were screaming for help, really, about the future of the planet. Um, I've just been really disenfranchised for years. Like, I don't remember a non-Tory government. I don't remember the NHS working well. Um, and I got, like, politics can become a real point of anxiety for me. Um, but I've been listening to Pod Save the UK recently, and it's helping with all of that, like... I feel more engaged with politics. I feel like more hopeful and I feel like I can organise now. Like I feel like that's not a waste of time and going to end, like leave me with my heart broken type thing. You know, I, I feel like I can do that. And that's in large part to like your podcast. And it's great and I love it. So thank you. I'm going to go back to binging episodes now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I don't have anything to say other than Crying emoji. <laughs> <laughs> God, God, it's so sweet. It's a really lovely thing to hear. And also, Clara, I think that's such an interesting point to raise about people whose lives are politicised. You know, that if you're... And it's for so many people in society. If, you're, if you've got an immigrant family, if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, if you're broke, if you're, mm. you know, if your family's broke, if you're a woman, you know, you don't have a choice in 
being engaged with politics because it's thrust into your day-to-day life. And I do think that's uh, such an interesting such an interesting point to raise about people yeah. whose existence is inherently And it was mad political. as well hearing Clara say, oh, I don't remember the NHS uh, being good and I don't re- remember not having a Tory government. I don't really remember, to be honest. Yeah. I'm older and I don't really remember. This has been going on for so long. So yeah. I don't blame lots of people for sort of being tuned out, you know, and it can sort of feel like... You know, to tune in is is some sort of form of self harm. You yeah. Know? But uh, you know, it's really nice to imagine that all those Fast and the Furious jokes is sort of <laughs> <laughs> helping somehow. But like genuinely, we talked a lot about like you know being hopeful and the nature of being progressive has to be hope. Yes. It has to be relentless radical hope all the time you have to keep going and so yeah any way that we've been able to help do that is is genuinely music to my ears so thank you so much clara i think it's only fair that we should tell people we also get slagged off regularly much more comfortable dealing with people slagging me off that's a much better position to for me to that that's a much better position for me to be in Um, but thank you very much uh, for contacting us well in the last episode nish you also told everyone about your dad's homemade cold remedy it got people thinking so from at in So Serious. I think that's meant to be I'm So Serious, maybe a Heath Ledger reference. We respect it. Uh, Dad's old weird South Indian cold remedy. It sounds like Rassam, lol, except for the honey. I imagine adding honey to Rassam would taste vile, but maybe just Rassam itself would work for the cold. I love Rassam. What is Rassam? Rassam is like a, it's like, um, it's a kind, it's kind of a like, like a thinner soup. Like it's like a drink that you drink when you're ill or just because it's delicious. It is really delicious. It's not, <laughs> Rassam, to be clear, is much nicer right. than the black tea with garlic. And it's like a spiced soup thing. It, it's, I fucking love Rassam. <laughs> I like, it's so delicious. This uh, episode sh- was brought to you by Rassam. Rassam yeah, I would, I would love that. I would love to be sponsored by, if, if anybody works for Okra, just in any way, I would love for us to be sponsored by Okra. It's my vegetable of choice. I absolutely love it. If anyone works for Big Okra, uh, Big Bindi, I'm in 100%. We love uh, when you get in touch with us. It's genuinely such a gratifying thing. Uh, you can do it by emailing psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. We also love to hear your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514 644572. Internationally, that's plus 447514 We'd love uh, to get your thoughts on what we've discussed in this episode or nominate your own heroes or villains, or maybe you'd like to send in a question for your favourite political agony aunt and uncle or just your thoughts on Bex Odelay <laughs> do you think it's Bex's best album what other uh, giants of 90s alt rock would you like to discuss on the show uh, email us at psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop with additional production support from Annie Keatsthorpe and Dawn Emery Video editing was by David Kaplovit and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer, David Dagahi. The executive producers are Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz. We're on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel, but you can also follow us on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram where we're at Pod Save the UK. And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or just wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Okra and Bex Odelay. <laughs> NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.